I have been looking forward to this day for a long time. And I was trying to remember just how young my kids were when I was here last, because I'm quite sure they were toddlers, and my youngest just graduated from Cal Poly uh, last... I'm trying to remember when he actually graduated. I think he finished up in December, but yeah, anyway. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be back. You missed the best part, though, because I'm also the um, proud papa of four fur babies and and two um, two horses. I'm a I'm a equestrian dad as well. So, but thanks for the introduction, Kim. So, <clears throat> we're going to get into a lot more specifics of of what's going on this afternoon. I just want to, you know, looking back on on the past 25 years. I just want to highlight a couple of things about our religious liberty ministry because, frankly, most of us really don't know very much about what that is. So you'll hear more from me this morning about how the whole concept of religious liberty has changed in our country to the point where on my business card now, we no longer identify the church state council as the religious liberty ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist church because that means things that we don't mean anymore. So it says the... Oh, well, see, I have old cards. Somehow I don't have my new cards. Well, if you want a card, you're stuck with an old one. It says the um, Educational Advocacy and Legal Services Ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, what we do here and in many places is, is education. Advocacy, we have succeeded in enacting the toughest laws in the nation here in California to protect religious freedom in the workplace. And it's not just laws in the legislature, it's regulations. And as of literally the end of this month, trying to keep my month straight, the end of July, we're expecting a new regulation to be finalized that we've been working on now for about five years. Anybody ever been turned down for a job because on the employment application, you know, when they asked about your availability and you weren't available on Sabbath, they weren't interested. And that happened to anybody? I see a few hands go up. And, and you might not even know for sure if that's the reason why, right? Sometimes you know, sometimes you don't. Well, it's illegal to screen people out because of their race or their gender or their age or disability, and yes, because of their religious observance. But it happens all the time. So the regulation would instruct companies, you can ask about people's availability, companies have a right to know, that's a, you know, that's fair game, but if you're unavailable because of religion, disability, or medical condition, the company has to say, don't tell us. Don't put it down. And I've been asking for this for years. They said they would come back to it. They've been redoing all the regs, and now they've put it forward for a public comment period. And we're praying and working, making, you know, and, and hopefully this will be the kind of the final piece of 
a whole structure of law that provides really good protection for people of all faiths. And we've been increasingly called upon in our legal services work to represent people of many different faiths. And, and that's consistent with the golden rule, isn't it? That's what drives us is we believe religious, we believe in religious liberty not just for ourselves. Isn't that right? Okay. You guys, you know, you, you have a reputation to live up to because you were so hospitable when I was here last. So glad, glad you're awake. All right. So <clears throat> let's see here. I've had so many thoughts whirling through my head with all that's going on in our nation the last few weeks that, um, and thinking about, you know, 4th of July, I couldn't just kind of preach the sermon I've been preaching. I, so we, okay, I thought I'm supposed to do this one here. But, oh, you know, here's the problem. Um, yeah, I've got to turn it on first, right? Okay, we'll figure this out. Okay, there we go. Like magic, we need power, right? Okay, there's a spiritual lesson there somewhere, isn't there? All right. So, <clears throat> are we a Christian nation? Do we aspire to be? What, what, what do we mean by that? Seventh-day Adventists find here in the book of Revelation a reference to the United States. Uh, a very poignant reference, very profound, in very simple uh, symbolism. Uh, there should be another one in front there. It's verse 11. It's not verse 1. Uh, somehow it got cut off. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, for starters, I think that in our careless reading of this, we have assumed that the lamb is our history and the dragon is our future. But when you actually look at the text, the text, I mean, in our Bibles, typically it's put in the past tense because we don't have a good way in English to express the imperfect tense. In the Greek, what it describes, both with respect to the lamb and the dragon, is action that began in the past. It's continuing action, but it's still incomplete. And it goes into the future. Which is to say, the lamb and the dragon have been contending for the soul of America from the very beginning. And if you think about that, and you have any grasp of our history, I think you can see both principles at work in our nation. Now, this time of year we often remember the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, etc., and to a great extent, even at the time this was written, it was aspirational, right? Because women didn't have the right to vote. And uh, African slaves were treated as a part of a compromise as three-fifths of a person. 
so the notion of equality of treatment and protecting life and liberty for everyone, it was largely aspirational, but wonderful principles. And in those aspirations, we find our, our best values and ideals as Americans. Now, Ellen White, referring to these principles in the Declaration, um, describes Republican and Protestantism as the secret of America's power and prosperity. She says, in the great controversy, the oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. Now, when Ellen White describes America's founding principles as republicanism and Protestantism, She's not talking about what some people today mean when they refer to America as a Christian nation. Uh, Protestantism, in, in her understanding, had far more to do with the institutional separation of church and state with respect for individual liberty, not the notion of a church exercising dominant political power, which is what we're going to see in, in due course. And we could spend all day just exploring the history of, of these principles. But <clears throat> lately the Lord has led me to Matthew 18. And I really want to tie in Jesus' teaching and experience here in Matthew 18 with the whole subject of how we as Christians relate to government and how we see what's happening in our nation with respect to church and state. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? At what time? At what time did the disciples come? Well, open your Bibles. Take a look with me. Not at Matthew 18, but at Matthew 17. What had just been happening just before they asked this question? What we see is the transfiguration. Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter and James and John and the glory of God upon him. And the voice that came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And after they come down from the mountain, Jesus tells them in very plain terms that he is going to be killed, that he will suffer and die and be raised again. And yet, having heard all of these things and having seen these things, what is it that is going through the minds of his disciples? Who is the greatest? They want to know who's going to be the next Supreme Court Justice. They want to know which one of them is going to get to be Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Chief of Staff, Press Secretary. 
right? They want to know who's going to occupy the key positions in the kingdom. Who is the greatest? And Jesus calls a child to himself and he sits him down and he says, I tell you the truth, unless you are converted and become like children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, maybe it takes a Jew like myself to be able to explain this, but he's talking to Jews. Jews didn't convert. Gentiles, some chose to convert and become Jews, But Jews didn't convert. They were already Jewish. You know, we had been, sometimes we have the wrong idea about the Pharisees. We think the Pharisees were legalists. Now, in the Adventist understanding of legalism, legalism we understand to be where our performance, our obedience somehow adds merit to our standing with God, to our salvation. That's our understanding of legalism. That our performance counts towards our salvation. Jews, the Pharisees, weren't legalists. They didn't believe they were saved because of their works. They were called. They were chosen. They're the chosen people. They were saved because they were Jews. Just like You know, we Adventists, some of us believe the same way. We're not saved because of our works. We're saved because we're Adventists, right? Supposed to get a few chuckles out of that one. No, we, we understand that it's by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about that. But for Jesus to say to his disciples, you have to be converted, they've got to be scratching their heads. What? has gotten into this guy, right? You have to become like little children. This is very difficult for them to comprehend. But Jesus is telling them that the kingdom of heaven is not about the power that you seek, right? They're seeking for power. They're seeking, they're expecting Messiah ben David, the son of David who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Instead, they're going to get Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering servant who will atone for the sins of all humanity. Whoever humbles himself as his child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Following up on this very difficult teaching Jesus tells a series of three. And there are lots of series of three throughout the Gospels. Um, This may not seem like a series of three. Well, I guess I'm getting out of order. But let's go here first. Because Ellen White picks up on the same concept of how it is that the church seeks for power in this world. And in Desire of Ages, she says, today in the religious world there are multitudes who, as they believe, are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ 
as an earthly and temporal dominion. They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in its courts and camps, its legislative halls, its palaces and marketplaces. They expect him to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authority. Since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves will undertake to act in his stead to execute the laws of his kingdom. The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He would not accept the earthly throne. The church today want to establish dominion such that they will enforce what they regard as the laws of God? Do you see that happening today? I do. We'll talk a little more about that. So, Matthew 18, Jesus presents three, a series of three. And I think the thing that binds these three together is grace. They describe the kingdom of grace. He tells the parable of the lost sheep. Now, we've read this and, and preached it for years, and, and maybe we haven't thought about this in terms of grace. I mean, you know, a lot of us, hey, it's cold out there. We got 99. You know, we'll worry. We'll go find the you know, the one that got away tomorrow, you know, it'll be fine overnight, you know, nothing's going to happen. But he goes out and he goes after the one. Now, this guy, this little sheep that got away, he was disobedient. You know, he didn't follow the rest of them. He had to do his own thing and he didn't listen to reason. He was stubborn and rebellious and he got what he deserved. He was out all by himself, and he really deserved whatever the night had to offer him, right? He was an undeserving sheep. But the shepherd went out after him anyway and found him. And this poor little sheep that we think is so innocent, maybe he wasn't so innocent. Maybe he was really quite undeserving, but he got grace. I see it as a lesson of grace. And then we have, oh, I ask a question, who are Jesus' lost sheep? Yeah, well, you know, there's some people that we look at them and we say, these people would make really good Adventists. You know, these are the kinds of people we like to have in our church. And then there's other people that, you know, we don't think that way about. You know, because they don't, take our advice and they make the same mistakes over and over again and besides they're responsible for their own miserable condition and they really don't deserve to be part of our church do they well maybe they deserve maybe they don't deserve grace but maybe jesus died to save them anyway and maybe we need to extend grace especially to those that we see as undeserving 
Well, then you've got this, you know, what we, when we say Matthew 18, we think of how we're supposed to go to our brother who's offended us and we're supposed to seek reconciliation. But, you know, when, when you think about this explanation of how we're supposed to be reconciled to our brother, you know, the brother who has done wrong, are they deserving to be forgiven? You know, they have really hurt us. And yet we're supposed to go to them and seek to be reconciled with the brother who's done us wrong? They don't deserve it. But we're told to go and extend grace. Right? How much grace? Well, you know, Peter hears all of this and, and, and he gets very excited. He's an emotional guy and he says to Jesus, I'm going to forgive seven times. Isn't that great? That's enough, isn't it, Jesus? Isn't that cool? Seven times I'm going to forgive. And, and you know what Jesus says, right? Seventy times seven. By the way, who are you ever going to have to forgive seventy times seven? Now, husbands, you're definitely not going to have to forgive your wives that many times. But wives, be assured, you will have to forgive your husband seventy times seven. Uh, I can uh, speak from my own experience. <clears throat> so, yes, it's going to be people in your own family. But Jesus then tells the parable of the unjust servant. You know the story. This guy owes the king a literal fortune that is so large It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And he can't repay it. And he pleads for mercy. And the king extends mercy. And then he goes out. And some poor slob owes him 50 bucks. And he throws him in jail until he can repay him. And the king hears about it. And he's not very happy with this unjust servant. How big a debt was this guy forgiven? Well... I did a little bit of math at today's values. It's like, you know, 10,000 talents of gold. A talent was about, in those days, 130 pounds, which means it's like, uh, I forget what the numbers are, 130 pounds, thousands of, of ounces of gold. Um, it would be something like $20 billion, which... You know, there's a handful of people in this world who could repay a debt of $20 billion. But if you're a one percenter earning a million dollars a year, it would take you over a thousand years to repay this debt. It's a ridiculous sum of money. Well, the point of the story, and it goes from this little uh, sheep who is apparently innocent to the brother who's offended you, who's definitely not innocent, to this unjust servant who is really owes a debt that is so large, there is no way he can repay it. And that's the point, isn't it? That the debt that we owe to God for our sin, we can't repay. Jesus paid the debt for us. And that's grace. We didn't deserve it. We owed the debt fair and square. But grace means we get 
much better than we deserve. Now, I have to tell you, Adventism has been a very confusing journey for me. I don't know, maybe you guys have it all figured out. I thought I did. But it's parables like this that make things very clear. I think, you know, people have liked my preaching over the years because I I am, you know, a, quote, convert to Adventism, and I don't use theological jargon. So you're not going to hear me talking about justification and sanctification and all all those theological terms. Uh, I'm sure they mean something to somebody, but, you know, they're just, you know, confusing to me. But this is not confusing. Jesus paid a debt for me and gave me something I didn't deserve. Isn't that right? You know, my mom, before she passed, well, my whole family was totally enamored with the New Age. And I remember the the debates that we used to have. And, you know, my mom would, would talk about karma. Well, karma is great if you're a well-to-do, upper-middle-class American and you're fairly content with your lot in life and you're healthy and, and happy. Karma means you get what you deserve and you feel pretty good about your life. You feel pretty good about yourself because you got a good life that you deserved. And then she got lung cancer. I didn't hear much about karma after she got lung cancer. But when we did talk about karma, you know, I would say to my mom, you may get what you deserve, but I get much better than I deserve with grace. Amen. So we've got these three parables of grace. Now, I think that when we understand that the kingdom of God is about this grace, this amazing grace, it helps us to see, by contrast, the ridiculous heresy of Christian nationalism, of America as a profoundly powerful nation devoted to upholding laws favoring the Christian religion. And by the way, Historically, the whole idea of America as a Christian nation was not inclusive at all, even of Christians, because it was very much a white, Protestant, European Christian nation. Uh, Historically, even within our own Adventist tradition, um, a legacy of anti-Catholicism, which was a mixture, frankly, of both religious bigotry but also ethnic because uh, Catholics were from places like Spain and Italy, a little darker, a little more ruddy than the northern Europeans. Now, I'll talk a little more perhaps this afternoon about this last bullet point. In the founding of the modern Christian political movement known as the Christian right, the myth is that uh, Roe versus Wade was, you know, the inspiration for the religious right. Well, it's been very well documented that that's false, that 
it was the Bob Jones University case and the federal government starting to take away the tax-exempt status of segregated Christian schools that was the real inspiration for the Southern Christians to organize and to uh, seek political power. And it's certainly an irony that the first major exercise of that power was to reject a Baptist Sunday school teacher as their preferred candidate in favor of a grade B Hollywood actor who clearly was not religious. You know I'm talking about Ronald Reagan. I don't mean any aspersions about Reagan, but as, you know, in, in, in the contest of character and spirituality, I don't think there was any doubt who was the real Christian of the two. And yet, um, Reagan was the one who promised to pursue their political agenda, and that's where the power shifted. Now, the underlying philosophy of this entire political movement, make no mistake, it is to take control, to make America a Christian kingdom, if you will. So this is from one of the earlier writings going back to, I want to say, the late 1980s. Christians have an obligation, a mandate, a commission, a holy responsibility to reclaim the land for Jesus Christ. To have dominion. Have you heard of the term dominionism? That's the the founding philosophy of this political movement. To have dominion in the civil structures, just as in every other aspect of life and godliness. World conquest... That's what Christ has commissioned us to accomplish. Now that term commission is certainly well chosen here within the Christian culture and within the text of Scripture. We have what we refer to as the Great Commission. Where do we find the Great Commission? In the Gospels, Matthew, right? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel, make disciples, right? Teach them, baptize them. That's the Great Commission. You you with me? The Great Commission is not world conquest, political dominion. That's not the Great Commission. Christian politics has as its primary intent, make no mistake, this is what we're watching today, folks, the conquest of the land of men, families, institutions, bureaucracies, courts, and governments for the kingdom of Christ. It is to reinstitute the authority of God's word as supreme over all judgments, legislation, declarations, constitutions, and confederations. More recently, Fred Clarkson, a a uh, longtime journalist and student of this movement was in D.C. earlier this year uh, for an event at Trump's Washington Hotel to answer the divine call to war. That was the title of the event. And he reports um, what their attitude was. 
It's no small thing when the living God, speaking through his apostles and prophets, is calling for enforcing kingdom rule and raising up an army of special forces. So he's quoting their terms. There's this whole concept of spiritual warfare that's being applied in the political realm. So they see themselves as an army of special forces and with the Pentecostal influence, you know, they believe that they are apostles and prophets and that God has raised them up to take dominion of our nation. That's, that's what's happening. Now, that arrow was in the right place on my computer screen. One of these days, I'll figure out how to get it in the right place up here. But I'm not really, you know, the best with PowerPoint. What can I say? So Ellen White writes about what the church has always done when she has lost the grace. We've been talking about the grace of Christ and how God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace and how central grace is that we are all the recipients of undeserved forgiveness, undeserved favor of grace. And Ellen White says, when the church loses the grace of God, finding herself destitute of the power of love, she has reached out for the strong arm of the state to enforce her dogmas and execute her decrees. Here, she says, is the secret of all religious laws that have ever been enacted, the secret of all persecution from the days of Abel to her own time. Christ does not drive, but draws men unto him. The only compulsion which he employs is the constraint of love. There's religious liberty right there. Christ gives us the freedom to love and to worship him or not. When the church even begins to seek for the support of secular power, it's evident she's devoid the power of Christ, the constraint of divine love. So we see a spiritually powerless church that has, in fact, now obtained power in our country. Back, you know, the Reagan administration paid lip service to the religious right and didn't really do anything uh, of their agenda, kept them at arm's length. There was a, a comment from some high, someone high-placed in the Reagan administration about how Jerry Falwell would have to come in the back door of the White House and how upset he was with that, and they had to make nice after that. So, <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to do much with this slide, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this question. We had been, we've, been, we've been wondering forever, what will bring the mark of the beast? How, you know, are we even going to see the trends leading up to it. And people have asked me these questions for years. And, and I've wondered. I am concerned today that Seventh-day Adventists are indeed, as Jesus himself said, that we are at risk of being swept up in the emotion and the political movements that lead to the mark of the beast. Now, why do I think we're at risk? Because 
the more I think about the mark of the beast system, <coughs> so far, prayers have done pretty good I'm trying to keep this cough under, under uh, control. When I think about the mark of the beast system, what I see is a use of law to enforce morality and religion. (coughs) Adventists are at risk precisely because we love God's law. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. And so when we see our Christian brothers and sisters wanting our laws to reflect morality and to to have a more moral country, well, we share the same morality. And many of us, you know, think this is a good thing. Madeleine Albright published a book recently on fascism. And I was reading chapters about Mussolini and Hitler and, and others. And, and one of the things that stood out in my mind was if you were in Italy, if you were in Germany, you certainly didn't see where this movement was going to go. It was incremental. The change was incremental. And you would never have thought that it would lead to the gas chambers, right? Um, So here we are, and we now have immigrant children in horrendous conditions, you know, at our border. And, you know, I ask myself, are these our Jews? And are we okay with the way that our country is treating these children? And, you know, is this part of a drift towards something that we Seventh-day Adventists have expected for a very long time? But will we even recognize it when it comes? Now, in Germany... The Seventh-day Adventist church disfellowshipped its Jews. And it's only in the last few years that the church formally acknowledged and apologized for what it did so long ago. The religion of the mark of the beast is certainly devoid of the grace of Christ, but I think, you know, at this 4th of July weekend, we need to also understand that it is a religion that blends faith and patriotism. It's very religious, right? It's the worship of the beast and its image and, and causes all who will not worship to be killed. Well, so there's a tremendous excitement and passion towards this religion that everyone is convinced is of God. But it's not. And I may come back. Some of these bullet points 
um, relate to past versions of this sermon and points that I haven't touched on. Maybe we'll, we'll come back to it this afternoon. But it certainly is a repudiation of our American constitutional system protecting civil and religious freedom and especially the separation of church and state. So today we see just consistent and persistent attacks on the separation of church and state. They're rhetorical, but they're also legal. We see attacks, um, and, and I'll develop some of the specifics of this this afternoon, eliminating the prohibition on government funding of religion, promoting funding of religious ministries, uh, eliminating the prohibition on government being neutral toward religion with respect to religious displays. We just saw a case Supreme Court decided recently that said, well, a cross is religious, but it's also not religious. So even though it's this huge cross in the middle of a freeway, we're going to leave it, or a, a, a state highway, we're going to leave it stand because it's not only a religious symbol. Well, when I was in college, I was studying decisions of the Supreme Court from the 1960s that said that Sunday laws were not only religious, that they were also secular, and so they were okay. So if anybody wants to know, are we going to get Sunday laws anytime soon? Well, if we get them, when we get them, there's not going to be a constitutional issue with them. Courts already said they're okay. So, <clears throat> I did say earlier that religious liberty doesn't mean what it used to mean. What it means today is the freedom to believe as I do. That's what most Americans think of religious freedom. I want religious freedom for me, not for you. And I would dare say around the world, that's even more true. We're going to talk about that this afternoon. The freedom to compel the state to fund our church schools and our church institutions. That's religious freedom. So you've got to give us money. It's the freedom to discriminate. At least that's how the non-religious see it, the attitude of the church. We want the freedom to discriminate. And... Uh, our critics see it as freedom for white Christians and the freedom to legislate Christian morality. The freedom to shove our religion down your throats. That's how religious freedom is increasingly seen. Well, I'm looking at the clock. I'll just I'll, uh, touch briefly on a couple of points here. But I will point out something that, that I learned from my predecessor so many years ago. Um, from Elder John Stevens, the whole impetus behind the criticism of Roe versus Wade and behind the efforts to restrict abortion are founded. I'm not saying that there's not a lot of genuine concern for the unborn. Of course there is, and we as Seventh-day Adventists share that concern. Start there. But the impetus comes from Roman Catholic theology that the immortal soul enters the fetus at the time of conception. Theologically, we Adventists need to pay attention to 
what Ellen White talks, speaks of as the two great errors that Satan will use to bring the people under his deceptions, not just Sunday sacredness, but the immortality of the soul. And in watching the developments with respect to abortion, I see this principle at work. Now, Seventh-day Adventists morally are mainstream in our Protestant views as far as protecting the lives of the unborn, except in certain exceptional circumstances, which is a fairly, has been a fairly common view. So we're not unique in our pro-life position. We're unique in not wanting to impose that pro-life position or discipline people if they uh, feel they need uh, to obtain an abortion. We certainly don't intend to legislate our position. That's, I think, what makes our view unique. Now, at a time when the church has taken power in our country, and is seen as oppressive and intolerant by those who are not part of the movement. Can we see the real Jesus? Now you and I, we see Jesus meek and mild, the friend of sinners. The one who has extended grace to us. We're very clear on the Jesus that we know and love. But to many Americans what they see in the church is Jesus the hater. The Jesus who hates Muslims and Mexicans and immigrants from those awful countries. And yes, of course, LGBTQ. They see the church supporting a system that endorses what we're doing to immigrant children, separating families, um, and and uncritical when white supremacists chant Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville, etc. So many Americans associate Jesus with the sins of the church. But thankfully, the good news is that many see the difference. And just an example recently. Russell Moore is very esteemed uh, president of a Southern Baptist religious liberty organization. He is a theologian. He's a, a conservative guy. And he spoke out in his Twitter about uh, what is happening to the children. He says, the reports of the conditions for migrant children at the border should shock all of our consciences. Those created in the image of God should be treated with dignity and compassion, especially those seeking refuge from violence back home. We can do better than this. I'd say that's a pretty good, sensible statement of, you know, uh, as a Christian response to all of this. Okay? Jerry Falwell Jr., whose picture on his uh, Facebook page has him and his family pictured with the president. He's clearly enamored of being next to power. He comes out and he attacks Russell Moore. Who are you? Have you ever made a payroll? Have you ever built an organization of any type from scratch? What gives you authority to speak on any issue? I'm being serious. You are nothing but an employee, a bureaucrat. 
that's not a response, okay? But, you know, I was interested to see the Twitterverse erupt and how people responded to Jerry Falwell Jr. And there were some better ones that I couldn't find to put on here. But, um, you know, you have things like this. Uh, in case you're still curious about what I would do, I wouldn't put children in cages, right? So some people are like, okay, you know, Jesus we know. This is not Jesus, right? <clears throat> Wait, what? I'm Jewish, so maybe I just don't get it, but I thought Jesus was all about helping the poor, caring for the outsider and the sick, etc. Is there some book in the Bible that praises the rich business person and elevates him above the poor? I'm confused. No, she's not confused at all, is she? You know, people are able to see through this and distinguish Jesus from the church. Some people are. And so I, I want to leave us with a challenge. And the challenge is to connect the judgment parable of Matthew 25 with the judgment message of the first angel's message, which is our heritage to warn the world of the judgment to come. And yet we neglect to connect with our our understanding of preaching that the hour of God's judgment has come, what the judgment is all about. And in the judgment parable, we know that those who are on the right side of the judgment are the ones who gave a cup of cold water to the thirsty, who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, gave shelter to the stranger, and when they did that, they didn't even realize they were doing it to Jesus. Right? You've read the parable. Now, we've got a problem with that parable because we're 2,000 years later, more or less, and we've read the parable, and so we know that the person who's hungry, thirsty, naked, whatever they are, that's Jesus. So, we're not ignorant. We either treat them like Jesus or we don't. Or we know that we're rejecting Jesus. But whatever we do, we're doing it knowingly. And he says that inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. And who are the least? It was literally in the middle of a sermon I'm preaching and the light bulb went on. I'm like, well, Jesus doesn't call anybody the least, right? Jesus doesn't demean anybody. He doesn't look down on anybody. So he's saying this for our sake, because we do. We do. We all do. There's somebody or some type of person that we stereotype and and we look down on. Maybe it's because of their economic status. Maybe it's because, you know, we think they're ugly. Maybe it's because of their race or their, some uh, Adventist communities, it's religion. They're the wrong religion. We don't like Catholics, or we don't like Jehovah Witnesses, or we don't like Mormons, or we don't like somebody, you know, who believes differently than we do. And in America, you know, we're taught not to like Muslims because they're all terrorists, right? That's what we're taught. Well, we all have different biases. But all of us, you know, we think that we're better than somebody. The least are the people that, 
you're not sure you want sitting next to you on the pew. Right? Those are the least. They don't fit in. So, it strikes me that while some people clearly are open to a community that gets who Jesus really is and who are willing to create a a worship community that's founded on who Jesus really is, that Jesus gives grace to all of us who don't deserve it and that we will welcome with open arms everybody who doesn't deserve it. And there are some people who are looking for that. And I hope that this will be a place that they will find that. And I pray and I trust that it will be. But there are people who are not looking for that because they've been turned off by the church, by the Jesus that they see in the church. And how are they going to see Jesus? Well, my premise is that they won't see Jesus in us until we learn to see Jesus in them. So I'm going to close with a little modern parable that a friend told me about uh, an old priest and a young priest in the monastery. The young priest joins the monastery at the time when they're having a month-long vow of silence. And after the month is over, the old priest comes to the young fellow and asks him how he's doing, and he says, you know, I really, really was blessed by this, this period of silence, but I am troubled by something. Every, you know, we, we've also taken vows of poverty, and we have so little to eat here, and yet it seems like every other day some poor beggar comes up the road and, and you open, you throw open the doors and throw open the pantry and you set a feast for him and, and, and we barely have enough to eat. What, what's up with that? And the old priest, he answers slowly. And he says to the young priest, he says, you know, when I look down the road, when I look out and I see the poor beggar coming up the road, I say to myself, Jesus Christ, is that you again? People may just not be able to see Jesus in us until and unless we learn to see Jesus in them. Amen.